Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is a certified public accountant and international tax expert. He helps expats and foreign nationals grow their businesses and protect their wealth with custom tax planning strategies tailored for U.S. expats and foreign nationals alike. Please welcome to the show, James Baker. Jim, how are you? Hey, Mikkel. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me to be on the show. Longtime listener, longtime friend. I'm so happy to be here. Well, the pleasure is all mine. You and I have been friends for several years now, and I I might as well come out and say it right at the beginning of this interview. You are the CPA that I use for so many of my clients. You have helped so many of my clients over the years, and I'm so grateful for your assistance and your advice. And when I have problems with a lot of tax planning things, you're the first person I go to because you've always been very generous with your time. And obviously, your expertise and your knowledge and your understanding of these complex matters is definitely there. So I'm really happy to have you on the show, Jim. Thanks, Mikkel. And you you definitely keep me on my toes. You have a, a lot of really clients with a lot of stuff going on. There's always, I'm never leaving the call with a definite answer. It's always like, I got to look into that. I got to look into that. And you know, that's how it is. Because when you're an American, especially Americans leaving or investing outside of the US, there's just so many things to consider. What your business is doing, what you're investing in. And we get into so many topics with with your clients. So it's it's always interesting from my end too. <laughs> Amazing. So Jim, in traditional expat money format, tell us about your backstory. How did you become a CPA? How did you get interested in this? I want to hear a little bit about your life. Thanks. Okay. So born in New Jersey on a cold winter night. I'm just kidding. So I'm from the US. I'm from New Jersey is where I was born. My family's from the Midwest and all that. I went to you know, without going to too much of that kind of details, I went to college in New Jersey and I Went in with a business degree with a focus on general business. And that first accounting class I took, I said, let's do it. This is a focus that I like. It's interesting. And I just really got interested in it. So, you know, I, was, I did all this stuff. I was, I graduated a little early. I was president of the accounting club. I got a job in public accounting. So I graduated college and I started working for a, re, a regional firm. I worked for PwC for a year. I worked for this regional firm. I worked with a lot of foreign nationals who are coming to the U.S. and working in the U.S. And a good amount of expatriates, Americans who are leaving. And doing planning and doing tax compliance and all the forms. I did that for four, about four and a half years. And then after that, I went to a, a regional firm in Manhattan. I worked in uh, the Empire State Building for almost five years with an Italian firm. And it was all 
multinationals like a, a Italian luxury brands who had U.S. corporate subsidiaries and a lot of like high level corporate work. So I learned a lot about the personal, the corporate work. And then it was, it was exciting because they had an office that was opening in Miami. So I had the opportunity to transfer to Miami and get out of Manhattan. It's really competitive. It's really complicated living and working in Manhattan. So I was jumped at that opportunity. I said, let me move to Miami. So I moved to Miami and I realized that compared to like with working in Manhattan, everything's hyper competitive. Everyone's in early, working late. In Miami, everyone's lazy. And there's, if you want to be an entrepreneur and succeed in Miami, you'll find that many people are taking shortcuts. Many people are not working that hard. So there's a big opportunity there. So I found that I was going to work, like working regular hours. And I had like all this time, I had new kids on like a growing family and I had more time. And eventually I was like making websites. I was doing research. How can I add tax services and do stuff on nights and weekends? And I got let go from that company because I discovered my activities. And I was basically thrust into entrepreneurship by losing my job and needing money and just being out there. So, you know, that was in 2017. So I'm a young entrepreneur. I've only been doing it for a couple of years, but obviously I get to the benefit of working with successful entrepreneurs every day and people who are doing really well with their businesses and I get to get insights from them and it's been going great. So in Miami, the business has changed and evolved. I work a lot with foreign people, like people from outside the US who need US companies who want to expand to the US and who are interested in having US banking and US financial solutions without actually paying taxes in the US. So I help a lot of clients like that in Miami. It works out great. And then also just because I know it and I'm interested in it and I do it personally, the U.S. people, the U.S. citizens investing and expatriating and doing all that abroad, I spend a lot of time on that as well. Not only because I have the experience, but because I'm interested in it personally. And that's what we talk about a lot. I'm always, again, asking you for your insights on that kind of stuff. So that's kind of where I'm at today. I'm, I'm helping a lot of Americans expatriate, do their compliance correctly, and I'm helping a lot of foreign nationals, non-residents, you know, use LLCs and U.S. companies and bank accounts to save money on taxes. Well, so I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I work with a lot of accountants. I know a lot of accountants around the world for many years of doing this type of thing. If someone pointed at you and said, oh, he's an accountant, I never would have picked that for you. So it's it's kind of interesting when you tell me about your backstory and that, you know, once you got into it, you're like, yes, this is for me. People traditionally have a, a certain view in their mind of accountants as being, you know, not very exciting or maybe very analytical. You're a fun guy. Like we go out and have nice dinners together. Your family and my family are friends. And, you know, we travel and talk all the time and things like that. So I say that all with absolute respect and love, but it's so different than some of the other accountants that I work with or maybe traditional thoughts of accountants. Yeah. So when I talk to clients, I tell them I'm really an entrepreneur who knows tax law. And that's how I look at myself. And that's I'm involved in other businesses and all that stuff. I think I like in terms of accounting, like actual bookkeeping and stuff. It's like the it's the most like commoditized of all the services, like the the tax planning and the tax law is where we can really add value. And it's great. I like it as a service because it's like required. I'm good at it. I know a lot of it already been doing it forever. And I, it's a real bottom line result. Like I can quantify how much money I'm saving clients. So I like doing that, but yeah, it really is. I'm looking for business opportunities and I, and, I, and I love what I do because I get to talk to so many successful entrepreneurs and I'm not shy about asking questions. I'm, I'm very humble and you know respectful with my clients and, and I because I come across with that with that like a perspective, I've been able to get a lot of information from clients and help them out and we've just been great relationships all, all around. Well, I bring this up because when you have a relationship with a lawyer or a CPA or a service provider and you end up spending a lot of time together, it actually helps to have someone that you 
like, that you want to talk to and enjoy and genuinely cares about what your problems are. I have worked with many professionals in the world who can be very arrogant, can be very condescending. You are the exact opposite of that. You are very approachable. You know, I always feel comfortable coming to you with the different challenges that I faced with my clients. So I always really appreciated that of you, you know, that we can talk about things and go through it. And it's never like, oh, that's a stupid question, or you should know that or something like, you know, there's none of that kind of attitude. So that's the last thing I'll say about that. But uh, when you work with a professional, having someone you get along with is absolutely key, especially when you want to have long-term relationships. And I suggest when you work with a lawyer or a CPA that it is a long-term relationship. You want to find someone that you're going to be with for for a long time. This is not just a one-and-done type of service and you move on. But today's topic, and I suppose what I really want to dig into, is talking about the U.S. as an offshore jurisdiction. Most people out there in the world don't seem to understand that the U.S. is actually the largest tax haven, the largest offshore jurisdiction in the world. They kind of always think just of really small little islands in the Caribbean that half the people have never heard about. Maybe we can kind of start with your thoughts on how the U.S. systems function, and then we can get into details about foreigners entering into U.S. markets and what that looks like. Sure. That's a, a great comment, Mikkel. And thanks for the kind words. What's well, it's super interesting from my perspective, because like I mentioned before, I, I started my career and I did over 10 years in public accounting, working for various large firms and in the public accounting realm and with other like seasoned professionals, the guys who have all the information and who are in it every day, the concept of the U.S. being a tax haven or a, a, a fiscal paradise and everything, it's not really discussed. And the concept of a, a foreign person using an LLC isn't really something that's discussed or shared or even necessarily utilized with planning. And it was crazy because I was on my own working with myself. And it wasn't even like until a year, two years in, maybe a year and a half in, like 2019, when it really clicked that this was like such a distinct advantage for so many people all over the world. And now it's something that I'm fully aware of and that we're really taking advantage of the, the most that we can. I was on a call with a Portuguese attorney yesterday and I was like, so how do we structure this? I have a, a client in multiple jurisdictions. We're trying to figure out a plan of structuring stuff. So I'm like, so what's the best jurisdiction where we can set up a company and pay no taxes or low tax rates that works in Portugal? He's like, oh, uh, the US, obviously. And I'm like, no, I mean, it can't be the US because of this client, how it was set up. But that's the view in other countries. Everyone else understands and is aware that the US is is basically a tax haven. It's, it's a fiscal paradise and it's where the, you know, the world major currency is kind of set up, right? It's all US dollars. So it's just crazy and how the concept and, and I get clients every day that worked with another attorney or another CPA and the, and that CPA told them that yeah you have to pay taxes you have this this LLC you have to pay taxes and it's still like not like understood or common knowledge and there's not much case law about it in the US but the laws are clear and I've written memos about it and I've advised other CPAs I have my YouTube channel my James Baker CPA channel and and I'll give CPAs schedule calls with me and ask for insights about how this works and how everything is going so I don't really understand why there's such a gap in the knowledge and because the concept is very simple, but it's just many CPAs and many American like uh, international people aren't really focused on this or aware on it. A lot of them are too busy to even spend time talking about it or looking into it, or they maybe only work with US clients. But yeah, it, it is an opportunity. It does exist and it's fully correct. And it's the IRS is on board with it. And you can tell by their actions and how they're administrating everything. Well, we'll get into the, the details in a moment, but I, I do want to break down a couple of the other aspects, which would argue in favor that the U.S. is a tax haven. So we have a mutual friend, a, a president of a bank, and he describes the U.S. financial markets as like an eight-lane highway. 
So if you're able to participate in that eight-lane highway, you're going to be able to go really, really fast. Opposed to coming down to the Caribbean or a lot of these other jurisdictions and trying to do all of your banking through there, it can be very slow. Fees can be very expensive. It's very arduous. It's very difficult to get quality staff in a lot of these bankings. In the U.S., it's a super hyper-competitive market. Now, add to that, when you're looking as banking outside of the U.S. and you're looking at U.S. people, you have to comply with FATCA, Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. Now, that is the U.S. dragnet for all information worldwide on U.S. tax people. Now, the rest of the world, what we have is CRS, Common Reporting Standards. I had a client the other day who asked me, like, what countries can I bank in which are not following CRS, like which will not get on board with CRS? And it was an absolute no-brainer. It's like the U.S., of course. The U.S. is not signed on for CRS. They want everybody else's information for banking, but they're not willing to give out other information to other countries with these types of things. So it's like you have a one direction with the information. You have the ease of finances going back and forth. You have strong asset protection and wealth protection laws there. And what we're going to get into a moment is if set up correctly, there's actually no taxation for a foreign person entering into the U.S. So there's a lot of arguments as the U.S. really is the largest tax haven in the world. You've given me a lot to talk about on, in this comment. You just made a bunch of comments. So I want to talk about the information sharing first, because that's a big concern I have with a lot of my Latin American clients. And I was recently, okay, like tax nerd alert, you know, I was recently reading the IGAs, the intergovernmental agreements between certain countries in the U.S. And they're basically information sharing agreements that the U.S. has with these countries because the U.S. doesn't participate in CRS. They have these separate agreements. And the agreements are really focused and specifically mentioned multinationals. So the agreements are more in place for the focus of sharing information on like Coca-Cola Argentina than it is for like Juan Pablo from Argentina. So that's how most of those agreements are set up. And you're right. And it's interesting. I think a big and this is speculation, but the reason that they don't participate in CRS is because of how our banking system is set up. The U.S. government isn't mixed in with the U.S. banks like it is in other countries. So what FATCA requires is for the countries to require the banks to do certain things. So if the U.S., for example, was participating in FATCA, it would, it would require that the U.S. banks do certain things, collect certain forms and do certain things and send those to other countries. So it's really inconsistent with a lot of how business is done in the U.S. Everything is kind of independent. Everything's like capitalism. All the banks are private, but they have insurance from the government. So everything's a little disconnected and it's beneficial for entrepreneurs because you're really just dealing with your bank and you can do kind of whatever you want with your money. And the government gets a form at the end of the year that the bank will send them based on how much money you earned from that account. So you could have a zero interest account and the bank wouldn't tell anything to the IRS about the account. So there's a big disconnect in the information reporting. And then uh, about the banking thing, one other thing about the CRS that I think is, well, about FATCA that I think is really interesting is that with for fun, like a year and a half ago, I got my anti-money laundering license from CAMS. So I got my certified anti-money laundering license and I got to learn a lot about those organizations and what they're looking for, but more importantly about the banking system. And the U.S. government has, because of the correspondent banking, has a lot of potential to overreach in what they can do and see or say, but that's generally for foreign accounts. And if you are banking outside the U.S. and you do something that the U.S. doesn't like, especially with regards to money laundering and stuff, they can take money from other accounts from other countries and everything. And that's why they have so much sway over the FATCA and, and the banks and these governments because of the, how the banking system is just set up. So when you're banking in the U.S., you're not really subject to all that stuff as much. You're kind of like uh, 
you're not in the overreach because you're kind of under the radar, but you're also not under the radar because of the reporting is so like sparse. So what I'm trying to say at the end of the day is it's a great opportunity for foreign nationals and non-residents to bank in the U.S. Yeah. So the last point there, I think, is the most important one. What we're talking about today is specifically about bringing non-U.S. tax people into the U.S. to have corporate structures, banking, access to financial markets, brokerage accounts, things like this. This is not, you know, the U.S. is the the largest offshore jurisdiction for non-Americans. For Americans, it doesn't work. So although we're going to be talking about cross-border transactions today, a lot of this stuff is actually not going to apply for Americans. It's actually going to apply to the rest of the world. Real quick aside, on the contrary, if Americans are banking outside the U.S., then they still have to tell the government. So like Americans have to tell the the U.S. government everything on their taxes, whether they have companies uh, offshore, they have bank accounts. You kind of have to disclose everything. So that's another reason it's kind of can be easier. I had a call with a private client the other day, and we were talking about U.S. taxes. And I said to them, U.S. taxes is the simplest tax system in the world. And they looked at me and they thought I was absolutely crazy. And I said, no, listen, the U.S. tax system is very, very simple. You pay taxes on everything all the time, always. As long as you keep that in mind, then you're going to have no problems. The tax code is what, one page, two page, couple of pages on what you pay taxes on. And now you have 80,000 laws on the back end of exceptions to the rule. That's where the complication comes in. It all comes in on the exceptions. What you actually pay taxes on as a U.S. tax person is very simple. You have to file everything. You have to report everything, all of your money, all of your banking, everything that is done, you have to pay taxes on it. So that's why we have so many clients these days who are actually looking at renouncing their U.S. citizenship because they want to get out of these types of systems. You know, they want to get out of these and actually have a more clear path on how to deal with this. So we will not be discussing domestic taxes today, but I will say that as a U.S. person, it is your responsibility to file and pay taxes on on worldwide income. And a quick, another quick interruption. You can't expatriate if you're not current on your taxes. You have to certify when you drop when you drop your U.S. citizenship that you're current on your taxes. So you have to do it, even if you want to expatriate. You have to do it till the day you drop it. Exactly. Okay. So how should we break this down and explain U.S. trader business? I'll just talk about a typical client example because I'll tell you about who I'm working with. So my clients are broken down into. Generally, non-U.S. persons, Canadians, Canada and Mexico is a little nuanced because of NAFTA and because of the you know how, how close you are. But I'm talking with people in Europe and literally all over the world, and they're generally doing a service business or they're doing a, an e-commerce business or they're doing some kind of coaching business. But it's, you know, I mean, generally some your product or a service, right? You're doing something like that or an e- a digital service. And basically... If they're outside the U.S. and they're not doing anything in the U.S., we can open a U.S. LLC, just a basic LLC, a U.S. bank account, and they can use that to pay for Facebook ads. They can use that to invoice clients. They can use that. They can use payment processes in the U.S. and they basically get paid on all of that. And because they don't have anything in the U.S., they don't pay taxes on it because the LLC is a disregarded entity. And, and the example I use is that if I have an LLC and I make a million dollars, James Baker is paying taxes. My LLC is not paying taxes. So logically, if you're, if again, Juan Pablo in Argentina and you have an LLC, the U.S. has no jurisdiction to tax you. You're just living in your house. You're uh, doing work on the Internet and you're making a million dollars. And there's and there's case precedent. It is very old, but there's case precedent that shows having a U.S. LLC 
doesn't constitute having a U.S. trader business. So that's really what we're based on. You know, the, the facts are that you're not in the U.S. You have nothing in the U.S. And there's I wrote a whole memo on it. I can share with whoever wants it. It's a, you know, not legal advice, hashtag, whatever, but um, I'll share it. And it, it explains it. And the concept is almost too simple. And, and it works for a single member LLC or a multi-member LLC. As long as you have nothing in the U.S., you wouldn't have to pay any taxes here. There are There is compliance stuff and things you have to do, but it's it's just an awesome opportunity, even just to diversify, to maybe make it easier to collect funds from clients. And But at the end of the day, you're subject to your local country tax laws. So then you have to deal with wherever you live and you pay taxes, you have to deal with those tax laws. But that's where we have like a lot of the clients you help. You get them Panama residency and they leave Canada. So they have a Canadian citizenship. They kind of live all over. They end up paying taxes nowhere. And it's awesome. Very awesome. And I'm jealous. <laughs> and I'm like trying to like see what what am I doing? How, how do I get there myself? You know, because I want to do that too. <laughs> well, it's not just Panama. There's many countries in the world that will follow what's called the territorial tax system. So if you're looking at Nicaragua or Panama or Belize or Costa Rica, you know, all these countries kind of fall in. Or where I used to live in the GCC countries in the Middle East, income tax doesn't even exist there. So there's no one to file taxes to. You know, it just does not exist. So when you look at this kind of hand-in-glove situation where if you leave and you do your deemed disposition in Canada or, you know, from your home country and you've broken all ties with your home country and you move overseas and get a permanent residency there and get a tax certificate in this country and the country doesn't charge you any taxes. And then instead of banking in that country and paying $100 or something for an international wire transfer or only having options of like two or three banks, you have access to the U.S. financial markets and all the fintech companies and all the digital banks and, and PayPal and Stripe and all the payment processors and merchants and uh, Amazon and Walmart and all of these types of big companies. It can be very, very attractive for entrepreneurs. And the, the Americans and consumers the best. Everyone in America can spend money they don't have with credit cards. So if you're going to sell something, you should probably sell it to Americans, the most uh, fiscally irresponsible people on the planet. And it's great, especially like products and services. There's, there's just like a huge country with a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of businesses, a lot of people with needs. And when you have a U.S. company and you can just get paid with a credit card, it just makes it easier. And a lot of that is more complicated in other countries. And basically all, all the other stuff is the same. You would still have the same sales taxes if you're selling products, but it all it works the same. One other comment I wanted to mention about the, the residency stuff is that for people in Europe, like let's say an Italian person who wants to not pay taxes, he I think a lot of these countries, you have to establish a tax residency in another country first. I think Spain's a good example. A lot of my Spanish clients, I think they couldn't go to Panama because of some rule in Spain. So Panama didn't work. So they go to Dubai and they get a Dubai residency. And after you get a second tax residency, then you can basically pay no taxes. So all of Europe, as long as you leave the country and establish a tax residency, then you kind of live anywhere. They don't know where you're going to be. Well, it is the same in Canada as well, because what we have to do is there are a thousand subjective things for the Canadian tax system, but there is one absolute objective set in stone. You have to have a tax residency somewhere else. That's why when we move people somewhere, it's 183 days. We make an application. We actually get a certificate. Whether we actually have to go forwards and present that at some point is to be seen. But you have to have that tax residency and legal residency in another country to go through all of this. So it does take a little bit of time. But when you think about you know, the rest of your life and how much time is spent on filing and compliance and all of these pieces of the puzzle, not to mention the actual dollars that you could be reinvesting into the business or taking your family on holidays or 
a million and one other things that you would rather do with your money. I mean, it is worthwhile to to work with uh, excellent professionals like you and your services, Jim. And and I'm going to go ahead and plug you right now. If you guys go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash CPA, it's going to take you right to Jim's calendar. We have a special arrangement where he does a discounted initial call with all of my clients. It's a nominal fee just to show that you're serious. Jump on the call with Jim. He's going to be able to walk you through anything that we're talking about today. And in addition to that, which I think is is very, very nice of you, Jim, that if you end up doing any work product, he's actually going to credit the amount that you pay to the overall work product. So it's literally zero risk on all of these types of things. So if you go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash CPA, it'll take you to Jim's calendar. So there's my little plug for you, my dear friend. Thanks, man. <laughs> I hope that people take us up on this very good offer. Well, it, I, I get I talk to a lot of people and I'm happy to help. And everyone's super interesting, has their own thing going on. What The thing about Canadians and that you, you, you've made it, you're like, you're aside. Like if someone's in Ontario, they're paying 40% taxes and they're, like if they do all of this, they pay zero. So it's like, it's a huge thing. Even if you're making a hundred grand a year, you're talking about $40,000 a year. And if you do it now instead of next year, like the compounding and all the other stuff, it's just like, and that's why I'm thinking about doing it all myself. While I'm constantly asking you about residencies and about ways to do it and all this stuff and getting started on second passports and stuff, because I like living outside the country. I speak Spanish. I love visiting you guys in Panama and I'm trying, I'm, I'm going to figure out how to get out there for your birthday and everything. I'm really excited about all that stuff. So yeah, man, I think this is just a great opportunity for a lot of people. And, I, and I'm glad that you're using your platform to spread the word because there's no easier way to grow a company than sell directly to Americans with a U.S. company. I mean, if you're selling to them already. And I tell this on, on my calls a lot if because I'm an American consumer. If I have two equal services and one requires me to wire money to Panama and one requires me to pay with a, a credit card, I'm going to pay with a credit card. So it's, it comes down to ease of use for us lazy Americans. You know, Just make it easy for us to pay and we will pay. Well, with a lot of my services, so my main business is consulting on all of these types of things. There's a lot of hand-holding and walking people through the immigration process and the residencies and the citizenships. And then we deal with all the legal and tax compliant issues. For this. So what we're discussing today is, is one piece of the puzzle. And if you need the overall help, then you guys can go to expatmoney.com and up in the top right hand corner, there's a big orange button on there. It says work with us, you know, shoot me a message, make an application, and we'll figure these things out. We'll probably be working with you, Jim, on this piece of the puzzle. But you know, from the Canadian side or the Spanish or the Italian side, like we were talking about before, there are definitive steps that have to happen and they have to happen in the correct order at the correct time and done right. I mean, this is all about having more freedoms in, in our lives, not less. So we, we have to follow the laws, whether we agree with them or like them or not, doesn't really matter. We, we have to work through these types of things. So jumping back in, earlier you said that having a LLC, a pass-through entity and a bank account does not show a US trade or business, but then it's still being able to sell to US people. So you said that you're Juan Pablo in Argentina, as an example, and he doesn't have anything in the US, but he does have something in the US. He has the LLC, he has the banking relationship, and he's selling to US people. So define what would be not having anything in the US if these things do not qualify you. That's a great question. And I break it, it's a two-step determination. So you first have to determine if you have uh, effectively connected income with a U.S. trade or business. And that's the first definition. And, and that would be having a U.S. address. And, and a lot of the Internal Revenue Code and the regulations are worded with, they were all written in the 80s and before the internet. 
So none of it was written with any kind of specific references. It doesn't mention online businesses. So all of the references are referring to a physical business. So when they talk about like doing business in the US, the reference is, and this is taken from um, the regulations and also from like the case law, is like having a retail store. So doing business online isn't doing business in the US. They're talking about a retail store. So there's a couple of things. There's physical place of business. So if you have no office and you have no employees, then you're not satisfying that. And employees, again, another nuanced definition, but it's really you can have independent agents. You can't have a dependent agent. So an independent agent is someone who in the ordinary course of their business is doing what they're doing and they're not working only for you. So if I had one client, I would be a dependent agent. Since I have more than one client and this is all I'm doing every day, I'm an independent agent. So if you work with me and you use my office address, I'm an independent agent. I don't have the right to sign any contracts on behalf of your company. I don't have authorizations. I'm not high level management. So I'm independent in nature. And then also you're not delivering services in the U.S. So if you are selling, let's say you're selling machinery, but then you fly to the U.S. to install the machinery, then you have U.S. trader business. So most clients don't. And, and the big example here is for e-commerce because people use like Amazon fulfillment and they'll do e-commerce. But Amazon, again, is an independent agent. They don't work for you. They work for everyone. And same with these fulfillment companies. They have many clients. So they're independent just because they're handling and delivering your stuff doesn't mean you're doing business. It means you're working with an agent who's doing something and you're paying them to do a service and they're taking control of the goods and everything. So again, we have that understanding of how the law is written and how it's going, but we also have the IRS interpretations. If the IRS would require these guys to withhold on payments and they would like Amazon, well, you can tell Amazon you're a foreign person and you're using FBA and they won't withhold taxes on your payments other than sales taxes, but that's not, I'm not going to go into that now. So if, as long as you have no effectively connected income with U.S. trader business, the source of your income doesn't matter. So if you have all U.S. clients, you're 100% U.S. source. As long as you have no U.S. trader business, you still don't pay tax on it. If you do have a U.S. trader business, then you pay tax on the U.S. source portion of it. So it's kind of like you have to have a U.S. trader business to be subject to tax on your U.S. income. And if you have a U.S. trader business, you generally would have some U.S. source income because what else are you doing in the U.S.? And you would only pay tax on that income. The filing and the requirements are different based on how you're structured and everything. But generally, we try and advise our clients to not have a U.S. trader business. And if they're going to have a U.S. trader business, use an actual U.S. corporation. So if you're going to have, it's not bad to have something in the U.S., but it's it's important to define and have control over where you're being taxed and have certainty on that and to like protect yourself. And most of the clients we work with have established businesses and they just want to make sure they do it right. And they want to have someone they can like contact just like you. They want the, someone that they can like guide them through the process to make sure they're doing it right. So we've been able to do that for our clients and we've avoided many issues and it's not really clear, but I try and explain it in a way that that's as clear as possible. And it's it's supported by the action of the IRS. No, it makes perfect sense. Now, you did mention staffing things. Let's talk a little bit about freelancers and dig into that portion a little bit. Let's use an example like Upwork.com. Massive freelancer marketplace, you know, people from every corner of planet Earth. If a foreigner is coming in and having U.S. freelancers to do graphic design, video editing, any type of online service, are those people considered employees? Are you responsible for payroll tax? Are you responsible for any of these types of additional things that are normally implemented by the government with employees? Sure. Great question. So I can pay. It's the same thing for a U.S. business. I have a U.S. business and I'll explain it from that perspective first. The IRS has a definition on their website. You can go IRS employee versus contractor and they'll have a like a, a little... 400 word thing on what's an employee, what's a contractor. And it's kind of clear. And it's kind of like understandable. If you have someone who's doing stuff just for you every day and you're telling them exactly what to do and how to do it, 
then they would kind of be an employee. If you're like contractors, generally you're saying, I need this result. And then they kind of get it on their own. So that's kind of the, the the difference there. And they could be working for other people. Other ways we have like not, we have contractor agreements, we have them sign. And you, you there's just certain distinctions that you make in a contract and also with how you're running them to determine if they're a contractor or an employee. And then from my perspective, again, only a US, you're only paying it, you can only pay, first of all, payroll taxes to someone who's legally allowed to work in the US and who is working in the US. So if you're hiring contractors on Upwork, they probably don't want to be on your payroll. They're going to give you a W-9 and say, give me a 1099. They're not going to want to be on the payroll because they wanted, they're running their own business. So it's rare to have that. And if you if you wanted to set up a support office in the US, you could definitely do that too and also minimize the tax implications. If you wanted to have a sales office, you set up, a, get an office space, you open a corporation, you get an office space, you can hire 50 employees and they all work for that corporation. And then you it sells the service of something else and it makes its marginal profit based on the activity. So there's the ways to set it up also to have a U.S. business if you have to if, or if you want to and if it suits your your overall business, you can definitely do that without having to pay tax on everything in the U.S. So there's there's different ways to do it and tools in the U.S. where you can set up what benefits you best. And what's awesome about the, the U.S. is, that, like I mentioned, the banks and the government are really not connected and they're not sharing information. And most of the tax filings, you set it up how you want and you file what you want the IRS to see. So you have complete control on on how you explain yourself and how you present yourself. And the audit rates are still super low and that no one challenges anything. So as long as you cross your I's and dot your T's and set it up how you want to and have a plan, you can still use a, a corporation and have an actual business and still and generate a lot of profits in the US without actually paying much taxes in the US. If you You just have to set it up the right way. Exactly. And I think it is worthwhile for people to look at a lot of the contracts on these freelancer sites and how the agreements are written, because these are multi, not even just million dollar, decamillion, hundred million dollar a year companies, possibly even billion dollar companies. I mean, the legal work and the compliance that has gone into setting these types of things up is absolutely massive. So when you sign up for these things, you're signing up for a lot of the terms and services, whether you realize it or not. And they've already taken care of a lot of this work. So sometimes people are complaining like, oh, I have to pay 20% to this person or to this company to do my freelancing. I should just take the person off there. I'm like, no. Pay them the 20%. It's not even that much. It's not that much. It's, I think it's less, isn't it? Upwork is 20%. I don't know about all the other ones, but Upwork's 20%. My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com. I have some people on my team who I'll take them off. I actually, because it's what I do, I like the people to know. I'll open LLCs and bank accounts for my contractors, and I'll just pay them into U.S. accounts. Many of them like it that way. But I have some people who just like, no, keep paying me in Upwork. I like that. And I'm like, okay, I, it doesn't matter to me. But yeah, you, you're, you're right. And if you're going to take them off Upwork, you need to have the right contracts in place. And you need to, you know, cross your I's and dot your T's and everything. But most people aren't going to want to, aren't going to want to be employees. Exactly. That's my overall point is don't step over a dollar to pick up a dime. Pay the fees for these types of companies that have already done all the legal work and compliance work. Try to make your life as simple as possible. I mean, the more time that you spend screwing around on these things is the less time that you can be building your actual business 
and you know, getting more customers and, and products and services out there. Exactly. It's all about that's and that's what I want to help my clients spend more time on the high value tasks that they're providing. Cause a lot of my clients are, you know, one man shops, small, small companies, you know, they're doing well, providing a high level service, not like not unlike ourselves, right? I wanted to share a quick story with about one client in regards to this. I have this guy who has this Cypress company and he and basically they they do this software development stuff. And there's this business, I don't forget the name of it, but he contracts this business and this business has like like 15 actual W-2 employees in the U.S. for him. Because there are good programmers in the U.S., they're expensive, but they're, they're, they're skilled people out here. And that's a level up, right? So if you're using Upwork and you shouldn't really be concerned, this guy, I'm like, well, I don't know, this is kind of a, you're, you're pushing further into the gray zone of like, what's an employee, what's not? Because he's basically contracting a staffing company, but he's really running the employees and that's still working out fine. He's not had an issue with that. And I've seen that there are companies in the US that do that. They used to be huge in Mexico, like the whole staffing company thing. But there are people that do that. I think I look at that personally as a little bit more risky than than like Upwork and stuff. So that's the thing. There's levels, right? Amazon, I think, is low risk. If you're using a, a dropshipping company that has two clients, you're, it's a higher risk. If you're using your cousin to do all your fulfillment, technically, you know, you should probably pay tax in the U.S. and it's a higher risk. I mean, but it's all just engaging risk. And that's why I like to explain it to my clients is just explain the level of risk assessed with the activities that they want to participate in and help them make the right decisions themselves. <laughs> well informed. Very well said. All right, let's dive in a little bit into sales tax because I want to understand how this is viewed, what your responsibilities when selling into the U.S. Sure. Okay. So I'll just break it down for you. It's, it's it's really complicated because sales taxes are assessed on the state level and there's 50 states. I think there's like four or five states that don't do sales taxes, but that's the complicated part is that you're dealing with 50 sets of rules. The simple thing is that we can generalize a lot of it. Services performed outside the US are generally not subject to sales tax in the US. The only services subject to sales taxes are services that are performed inside of a state. So like if I have a shoe shining company in Texas, I think I have to pay sales taxes on my services. But it's really, but most of my clients are outside of the state. And if you're in the state, then you have to figure out, you know, you have to review it. You know, we have to, it's a different set of things to review. Regarding the sales taxes, they're generally, like I said, assessed on products. And what's awesome now, quick backstory, in 2018, Wayfair versus South Dakota was the landmark tax case, which basically the state of South Dakota challenged this company Wayfair, which sells like furniture, to say that you have an economic nexus in the state. You sell so much into our state, but because you don't have a, an office here or a factory, you haven't been paying sales taxes. Well, per that case, South Dakota won, and now they had their own physical nexus standards. So for many states, if you're selling more than 200 items or $100,000 worth of product into the state, you're subject to collect and pay sales taxes. And I tell my clients that it's not a tax for you, it's a tax for your clients. So if you do it correctly, the, the tax... The, the consequence is that you have to administer it and you have to like file it and register and it's annoying. But, and I don't even like to do it, you know, it's, it's the worst, but it's really not a tax to you. If you do it wrong or you don't do it, you bury your head in the sand and they come back and say you're subject to it, then you're hitting a 7%, 8% on your margin. And for e-commerce, you know, it's all about the margin. So it's important not to put your head in the sand. And I have a lot of clients that still are like, oh, I've been selling. I haven't done it yet. We're doing it from an LLC. We don't register and all that. It's it, right. But right now, and, and, it, and to kind of wrap this thought up, it's more of an issue for if you have a Shopify store, an independent website, if you're selling on Amazon, if you're selling on Walmart, on eBay, on Etsy, they're doing all the charging of the sales taxes and the collecting of the sales taxes on your behalf. So the states are integrating with more and more of these softwares so that if you're selling on, on these platforms, you don't have to worry about it as much. But if you're selling independently, it's something you need to keep track of. And then 
I mean, the states are quite aggressive on this because most of them don't have an income tax or like a low income tax. And this is where they get lots of revenues from. Yeah, that was going to be my follow up question was about these larger companies like Amazon and Walmart. I already know and understand that they're doing it on your behalf. So it actually, once again, simplifies a lot of things. So you you give up some control, but you get some ease of business. So it's it's things to consider when you're kind of building out your matrix of how to build your business and, and the for and against kind of columns on these types of things. But it's good to kind of give people a, a very clear view of the landscape here. In e-commerce, I think you should sell everywhere. I think if you're going to sell, have your own store where you make better margins, sell on Amazon where more people, it's easier to buy and you know, sell on all the websites. Because then you, you know, if you if you get a hit on, on Amazon, as long as you're still making money, it's fine. If you can sell on your own website and then control it better, do that too, do all of it. But then you, you just have to comply with all these rules. And it's mostly going to be from your own website is where you have to do your own filings. Okay, talk to me a little bit about the withholding taxes. You know, a lot of people who are are coming into the US, they have to pay withholding taxes on royalties, on dividends, these types of things. Are there any strategies using the US LLC, you know, pass-through entity type of thing to mitigate or navigate these things? Fun question. <laughs> So these are different topics. There are like little shortcuts and little things depending on what forms we do. A lot of it is depending on the scale is how I'll gauge my advice. So my advice is to schedule a call and discuss if you're paying a lot of, like if you're getting a lot of royalties withheld. So the royalties are, are one thing. Like if you have an, a YouTube channel and your audience is from the US and you're making $100,000 a month and they know you're foreign, they're going to withhold 26% on that. We can set up a US company where they won't withhold anything. Technically, then, you know, you have kind of, you technically have a U.S. business. So then maybe we charge management fees to another company and we reduce that and you reduce the tax you pay. There's different things we can set up, but you have, we have to see how much you're making from that and, and how you, and how it's all set up to, to justify whatever expenses it is to set it up. So the royalties, like if you're selling books, the most, most common if you're selling, getting paid from Google or YouTube for some kind of content. Or if you're selling books on Amazon, those are the most typical, or, or maybe like software licensing or something. Yeah, like KDP or something. Use KDP as an example. Okay, yeah, Kindle Direct Publishing. So yeah, if you, I have clients who publish books on Kindle and with whatever they sell on there, Amazon would withhold 30%. So I have a guy in Argentina who I've been working with for a couple of years. We opened him a US corporation and basically he gets paid the gross to his corp. And then at the end of the year, he pays himself like management fees for like 98% of his, what he receives. So he ends up having... A small, maybe a, a marginal income tax in the U.S., and then he takes his money to an LLC that pays no taxes. So I have a guy in Taiwan who does this something similar with Google Ads, Google AdSense. He he has again we set up a corp, so he has a U.S. corp, and it's not again the numbers aren't insane. I mean he does like four hundred thousand a year or something, which is good money, and uh, he gets it to the corp and he pays it out to his LLC at the end of the year, and he deals with it in Taiwan. So that way he's not really paying any U.S. income taxes. So it's that's how we get around it with royalties. And again, I don't want to like, you know, it's something that hasn't been too challenged. And we try and, again, do our due diligence and, and cover it as much as possible. And I think it's the risk there is that the IRS audits you and says these aren't real management fees. These are dividends, which are subject to withholding taxes. So that's the risk there. I just had a call going over that. So you have to, that's why I explained the risk to my clients, you know, you have to make a decision. And so far I haven't had any audits or anything in my whole career. And this is really great to note 15 years plus of doing taxes for in a, in a public setting for hundreds of thousands of clients, right? I've only done like four audits and it's like, really, it's not Canada. It's not like where you get audited and some of these countries have done like four. And I talked to IRS agents on the phone. I talked to one last week. They're understaffed. No one wants to work for them. It's like a terrible place to work apparently. 
and they can't get started. So even if they wanted to audit everyone, they don't have the people to do it. There's there, what I last heard, there's 80,000 agents and there's 300 million Americans, you know, like there's, and there's even more companies, you know, so it's, the audit risk is low. I'm not saying that's just like, don't report anything, forget about it. A lot of it's automated and everything, but I want to just make that caveat. So that's, that's about the royalties. Well, I'm going to interrupt for a second because I'm sure there are a bunch of feds who listen to this show and like pretend to be subscribers or something like that. So I hope you've not gotten yourself into any trouble here. But once again, everyone. I mean, I'm not, we do everything right. I'm saying we do everything right. We take positions and we have uh, support for our positions. And it's not, I don't think it's, if you want to work for the IRS, you can get a job tomorrow. Okay. Just call them and apply. You'll get a job. So if you're a listener and you don't have a job and you want to work for the IRS, it's a great place to work. Okay. I'm just saying that their technology is outdated. And uh, I think from what I've understood from what my experience is that their organizational hierarchy isn't that efficient and all that. And I, I say that as constructional feedback. I wish the IRS was more organized. Right now, I've sent an amended return and I don't hear back for nine months. And it's like, it's annoying. It's, it makes my job more difficult. So IRS, I have good hopes for you. I hope you get it together and uh, we can get some clarity on a lot of these positions we're taking. I hope they never get it together. I hope that they absolutely like become more incompetent and understaffed. You and- said they were listening. <laughs> I thought we were saying. <laughs> it doesn't mean I have to be nice to them. It just means that I have to be legal and compliant. I mean, it doesn't mean I have to. I am not above name calling. So, I- <laughs> yeah, we, we don't break any laws. We we uh, we take uh, tax positions, you know, and, and since the, the guidance is unclear, it'll, it gives us flexibility on the positions we're going to take. So yeah, so that's that. You know, I don't want to go, we don't have to, we can change the subject. I want to talk about the dividend withholding because there's a lot of people investing. Let's talk about the dividend withholding, but I, I do like busting your balls a little bit. So it's fun. It's fine. It's fine. I like it too. But the, <laughs> the, right now, like in December, there was an agreement signed between Argentina and the US, an informational exchange thing. And I'm finding that a lot of countries in South America are cracking down on, you should be reporting your offshore assets. And a lot of people don't because they don't trust the governments. It's dangerous. Like in Mexico, you don't want to tell the government you have a lot of money. Like they have their own things going on in these countries. And if you're investing in these these stock accounts and like, let's say you open an account at uh, Schwab or whatever, Interactive Brokers, there's two important things. Uh, If you do it in your own name, then the government will know you're making money. So the government will have information to share in your own name. If you do it in a company name, then they won't know who's the owner of the company. They'll just know this company has money. So if you're investing serious money, the, the first thing to think about is the information being shared. And this is for non-residents investing in the U.S. So if you do it in your own name, that's the first thing. The second thing is estate taxes. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this before dividends. If, you, if you're a foreign person and you have an account in your name and you die, before your family can get the funds out of that account, they're going to have to pay to 40% on the value of U.S. assets. And it's cre- U.S. stocks primarily. So if you have Tesla stock, and like I have, I do these forms for clients all the time. I have a family that's there. It's an African family and their their father worked for Exxon for whatever, 50 years. He had like 30,000 shares of Exxon stock, you know, like a couple million dollars of Exxon stock. I don't know the value. He had a lot, a lot of stock and basically they can't access the funds. He died like eight years ago and we're still like fighting to get these forms accepted by the IRS and figure it out because they can't even access the funds because the brokerages are the gatekeepers. And unless you can show that the estate taxes were paid, they won't give you the funds back. So they're, they're real gatekeepers here. It's the same for U.S. real estate. So U.S. real estate and U.S. stocks are subject to U.S. estate taxes, which are, if there's a gatekeeper, like a title company or a brokerage, you really need to have a good structure to avoid any issues and in the case of everyone's eventual demise, right? So you need to be you need to be prepared for that. So 
But what's stupid about this is that if you sell stocks, like Mikel can, op you can open a personal account at Interactive Brokers and buy and sell stocks and make $100 million on the trading, day trading. You won't pay any income taxes, but if you if you pass away, you pay estate taxes. So there's a huge disconnect there. The way we get around it is by using like a for, like a Panama corporation that owns an LLC, and then we invest in that LLC. The Panama Corp can never die, and therefore there's never an estate tax. And it's a little bit more complicated to open up, but this way your privacy is protected, you're protected from estate taxes, and you still get the same income tax benefits. Regarding the dividends, I mean, the dividends is something where just don't invest in dividend stocks. Invest in ETFs that hold the dividend stocks is what I'm telling people. Because you, if you get the right ETF packages or the right mutual funds that don't issue dividends but hold dividend stocks, you can generally realize the same appreciation and gains as you would have with the dividends, but without actually getting the dividends. So that's, I would say, consider the strategy, like remove, reviewing the strategy. And it's a little more aggressive to have a multi-member LLC and say it's a, a US person and get dividend stocks, not pay taxes, and then not withhold taxes on the back end or pay a management fee. I think it's a little more aggressive than I would, again, I just literally, before we got on, I had a call about this from a guy in, in Europe. I would just say, review that because it's, it's much easier. There's like no risk investing in those stocks. And that's one of the things that's clearly written. If you're a non-resident, you can invest in US stocks and pay no capital gains as long as you're not like a hedge fund manager. So that's something that's clearly written. So I know it. I'm getting a little technical, but I think it's important to say, that. I think that's really important because there's a lot of people who don't know about estate taxes. And I've had another story real quick. A Mexican guy called me, he was like in his twenties, his father passed away and he had like seven properties in the US. And I don't think we have a, a we didn't have a death tax treaty with the, the citizenship or the nationality his father was, but he had another citizenship that did have a death tax treaty. And I was I would have filed the forms in a way with which we would have claimed a, a huge discount from it. He went with he worked with someone else before that, and he called me after it was all done. But he had to sell two of the properties just to pay for the taxes for the other properties. And it, it's just tragic because this guy worked his whole life and he invested, saved his money as these assets. And when he passed, he gets hit with a forty percent tax on his assets when it could have been prevented by using like a corporate block or like a little bit of foresight. And he just didn't know. And there's so many people that don't know. So that's like something that's really important to keep in consideration. That is like my PSA for my foreign investors. The US market's great, but you need to do it the right way. Exactly. A lot of people come to me for trust work and working with foundations and things like that. And a lot of the first questions they asked me, you know, is how is this going to help them on a tax side of things? My advice is always don't look at these structures from the tax perspective, as in the income or the corporate tax, but for the estate planning side of things. This is the wealth protection, the asset protection piece of the puzzle. So all the lawyers that I work with are very well versed in these types of things. When we set up these structures, that's always at the forefront, you know, skipping probate, you know, making sure that everything is disposed as you want, you know, going to your heirs, going to your dependents, or even your favorite charity or however you want it to go. Otherwise, it will make it back to the government. And there's billions upon billions of dollars that go to the government this way. And if you don't believe in how the government uses a lot of these funds, I mean, you got to be careful about these things. And it doesn't matter if you're 20 something, 50 something or 90 something. I mean, these are things that you need to think about every step of the way and make sure that it's all done correctly. Let's dive into a little bit about the jurisdictions within the US. Let's talk about a couple of your favorite states for setting up structures. There's obviously Wyoming and Delaware and Florida. Talk to us maybe about some of the differences or what people should keep in mind when they're looking at doing structures in specific states? Sure. That's something I get asked a lot and I'm happy to comment on it for sure. So for Americans, it's usually going to be best for you to 
organized in the state where you're doing business. And that's the same for foreign people, except they're going to be out doing business outside the U.S. So for Americans, if you're buying real estate in Florida, it has to be it can't be owned by a foreign LLC unless you register it in Florida. So, for, for example, Florida is popular with a lot of my clients. If you want to own a Florida property anonymously, you open a Wyoming company that owns a Florida company and then the Florida company owns the property. That way, on the register, it shows in Florida that there's a, a foreign company that owns the property and then in Wyoming, it's private. So generally, you're going to need some kind of entity in the state where you're actually doing business or where you own assets. Again, there's 50 states. I don't know all the rules for every state. We have to look it up. But that's like the general rule for Americans. And and for international people, yeah, we have the favorite jurisdictions. We have uh, Wyoming, Delaware, Nevada, New Mexico. And I'll, and I'll give you a quick comment on all of the jurisdictions. So Florida is public. You have to put the owners on the website. You can Google search James Baker and Associates. You can see that James Baker is the owner of a Florida Corp. And it's, you know, I do business in Florida. It is what it is. You can also Google search companies in Wyoming, you can Google search a company in Wyoming, like you can Google search Tesla Inc. And it'll show that Tesla's on there. It'll show they have a nominee and a registrar. You can look up what entity is registered. It's just seeing who's the owner of the entity and if that's public. So in Delaware, for LLCs and in Delaware and Wyoming, and I believe Nevada, they're anonymous and you can have the organizer just say who opened the company. And for us, we have one of our attorneys, one of our legal people opens the company and then we assign the company to another person. So that's how we keep it anonymous. Right now, Delaware is really slow. They're backlogged. They're famous. I would say infamous. In certain countries, Delaware is actually like, I believe in, in Brazil, it's like a blacklisted jurisdiction, <laughs> the Delaware state, whereas you get the same exact benefits of having a Wyoming LLC and it's not blacklisted. So, you know, Delaware is a little bit, it's been on for some reason, it got better press. So it's, you know, it's a little more infamous for whatever. And uh, it's a little more expensive and it's, also overburdened everything. It's private. It's fast. I like it so much. I went and opened an office there so I don't have to pay any registered agents. And, you know, we take care of all of it A to Z in Wyoming. And it's just, it's fast. They, they respond well. And um, the companies are private. And we, have, we can use nominee services. So it's it's something that we use. I don't use Nevada because it's a generally a little more expensive and a little slower. New Mexico is a preferred one by people because you don't have to pay the renewal every year. You have to pay a registered agent. We don't pay a renewal. But Fun fact and something I discovered working with clients is that New Mexico has a general sales tax. So if you're running ads in Facebook with a New Mexico company, Facebook's going to charge you 8% general sales tax. Whereas if you had a Wyoming company, they're not going to charge you anything. So, you know, if you're being invoiced from things, they could potentially charge your sales taxes if you have a New Mexico company. And then, like I said, Florida's kind of a public company. So those are like the main jurisdictions. But as, in as far as fa um, taxes go... They're all pass-through entities. Generally, if you don't do business in the state, you wouldn't pay like an income tax in the state. They all have different rules. Like Texas is a good one. I'm in Texas now. They they have like a franchise tax. So if they don't have an income tax, but if you're doing a certain amount of business within Texas, then they charge you like a like surcharges and other taxes. So the franchise tax is really like the cost to renew the company. So Texas is another one that could work, but it's I don't think it's anonymous. You can just you can see, just look up some companies and see who the owner is. But yeah, I mean that's like a, a simple breakdown, I guess. As far as corporations. The benefit with Delaware is that they have, and this is why they get all the hype, is because of the public companies registered in Delaware. They have a good history and legal precedent for um, favorable corporate laws for in terms of like shareholders and stuff. Stuff that's beyond my the scope of what I ever deal with. I don't consult for public public companies, and I don't. I'm not an attorney in that regard, so it has never applied to any of my clients. So Wyoming also has tax-free corporations. So if you're not doing business in Wyoming, you don't pay tax by having a Wyoming corp. So I kind of love Wyoming. Also. Drove through both states a number of times. Wyoming's a much prettier state. Delaware is just a highway, you know, no offense, <laughs> but Wyoming is, is way nicer. 
So that's just like a little bit of personal anecdotes at the end there. No, it's good. And okay, I guess to kind of wrap things up, anybody who's listening to today's conversation and is looking at this and going, okay, I am not a US person, but this makes sense. I want to have the ease of banking, the privacy and the protection, the corporate blocker between my name and my assets. And I want to hold assets there. If people get a hold of you, if they schedule a call, you're able to help them with all of these things, correct? Yeah, thanks for asking, Mikhail. We actually have a really great service, and we've been helping clients from all over the world do this in a super efficient way, a very fast way, and it's really a white glove service for these kind of clients. And if you go to expatmoneyshow.com slash CPA, you can definitely schedule a call with me. I've never had a complaint or anyone asked for refunds on the calls. You know, I'm going to give you great insights. And not only am I going to be able to give you confidence on how to operate from a tax perspective, I can also potentially give you insights into your business because I work with other clients in similar industries and I get to see what's working and which clients are making a lot of money. And I'm able to connect a lot of people much in the way Mikkel does. It's it's really awesome. I love doing that. But our service in particular, we work until you're happy. You know, we want to get you all the legal stuff done right. We have the attorneys. If you will, we can open bank accounts for you, whether you come to the US or don't. If you want to fly to Miami, we're happy to happy to see you and schedule bank account appointments. You walk into the bank, you're out an hour later, you have a bank account. We take care of it all from A to Z, make it as easy as possible. We do all the compliance. And then you also have you'll be able to contact me if you have any questions, if anything comes up. So we have a completely unique service in the space. And I think my experience is uh you know, the little cherry on top where I'm able to really help guide clients in that way. So I'm really grateful you having me on the podcast, able to share some of this information and help hopefully help some more people, uh, their businesses and make more money and pay less taxes. Absolutely. Brilliant. I love it. Thank you so much for your time, Jim. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you, Mikhail. Appreciate being here. For my subscribers interested in international investing, I want to recommend my friend's publication. If you go to SvenNewsletter.com, you will find a free special report on crisis investing in Argentina. I went to Argentina last year and it was amazing to learn about the investment opportunities there and what is happening in the country. Go to SvenNewsletter.com for your free special report. That's S-W-E-N Newsletter.com. SvenNewsletter.com. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region.
But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.